Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 5th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 to 34. The prophet begins an extended oracle that uses the image of marriage to describe the history of the Lord's interactions with his people Israel. Though the Lord was always the faithful giving husband, his people repeatedly committed adultery against him by their flagrant idolatry. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Clint Poppy. Pastor Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome back to Sharp Rain. Well, it's always an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Pastor Poppy, we've got a lot of text today, so we're going to need to jump into it quickly. But by way of introduction, what should we know about Ezekiel, where he's been, where he's going in his ministry at this point as we look at the first part of chapter 16 today? Well, Ezekiel is the uh, third of the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and that's done chronologically. Uh, Ezekiel, the, the children of Israel, are carried off into captivity. God is uh, speaking to the people through Ezekiel. Uh, the uh, northern kingdom has, uh, has fallen, and that's almost a, a distant memory. Uh, this is, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of uh, time. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of talk about Babylon and uh, uh, God speaks through Ezekiel in a, uh, in a powerful way, in a way that has uh, kind of captured the people's imagination today, much like uh, the book of Revelation. There's uh, signs and symbols and uh, word pictures that are there. And sadly, uh, the book of Ezekiel does not come up in our pericopes, um, whether it's the three-year series or the one-year series, very often. And so a lot of times you'll have people say, oh, pastor, uh, let's, uh, let's pick a book of the Bible that we don't know very well. Let's study Ezekiel. And then the pastor, uh, if he knows Ezekiel well, the pastor will say, um, well, maybe we can skip over chapter 16. And uh, the people, no, no, we want to study it all. And that's, that's where we're parking the car right here today, chapter 16. It's a really long chapter. We're going to get the first half of it. It's a really long chapter. It's shocking. It's graphic. Uh, some, some would say it's pornographic. But uh, it has, uh, it's painting the word pictures of this uh, spiritual idolatry in a way that everybody is going to get, and they're going to be shocked at it. And that's what God wants. God wants us to be shocked over our sin. Yeah, we've we've seen this from Ezekiel before, how he really just pushes the language to its limits in order to grab the people's attention, not just for the sake of, of saying, oh, that's gross, or how could you say that, but to show the seriousness, the shocking nature of sin, 
in a way to call the people to repentance. And again, the, the primary image we're going to be encountering here is the image of marriage. That's going to be driving much of our section today and really the whole chapter. So we're picking up Ezekiel chapter 16, starting at the first verse. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you are cast out on the open field, for you are abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with the ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. That's the first part of this extended narrative. It's Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 14 that we've looked at so far. Just as a way of introduction in those first couple of verses, 1 and 2, here's the word of the Lord to Ezekiel. He addresses him as son of man and says, make this known to Jerusalem. What should we pay, see just in that introductory address from the Lord? Well, God is the one who has a message. God communicates the message to the prophet. This is uh, kind of a, a standard formula in the prophets, whether it's uh, the, the long uh, major prophets or the shorter minor prophets. And God makes it clear to the reader today, the hearer then, God makes it clear that this is not a message from the prophet's own heart. This is not a message from the prophet's own mind or uh, preconceived notions or anything like this. He is speaking God's words so that the people don't doubt that the message coming out of the prophet's mouth is the message of God. And God here, uh, early on, uh, son of man, and I think, I think that's probably a, a key word for us to focus on too, but where he says, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And so specifically, this chapter and the contents of this chapter, God is telling Ezekiel the message that he wants to proclaim. It's a message of law and gospel, but it's a message of harsh, uh, strict, eye-opening, shocking law. Uh, God cares for Jerusalem enough to point out 
her abominations. And uh, we're going to see this unfold uh, uh, in an amazing way. Right. The abominations, at least in the section that we've read so far, the abominations haven't come into view. I think, and Not this yet. Is, yeah, it, what's what's happening, just to think about this part in a, a large sense, is that we, we're going to see in this section the utter graciousness of the Lord to his people, how he showers upon them every gift imaginable, and then that's going to provide such a stark contrast with the abominations that will be listed in, in what we pick up after these first 14 verses. So that that sets the stage for us. Now, I mean, Pastor probably just about this, this text as a whole, should we think of this text as a a parable, uh, an allegory? How should we we consider this text as we try to you know kind of figure out what the Lord is getting at as he talks about first a birth and then growing up and a marriage? It, is it a parable? What would you classify it as? Yeah, it. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. That's probably above my pay grade to uh, <laughs> to classify it as a as a, either an allegory or a parable. It has characteristics of both. Um, I guess. I guess I would say that it is a very sermonic. In that, uh, when the when the pastor is painting word pictures from the pulpit, that's exactly what God is doing through I, uh, Ezekiel here. Uh, we just have some uh, eye-opening graphic pictures, and so I think that there are some some benefits uh, to think about it uh, allegorically. Uh, probably more more of a parable than an allegory, uh, but. Um, uh, it is uh, it is definitely God communicating to the people in word pictures that uh, they can clearly understand. Just like Jesus, uh, before he tells a parable, he's standing there and he's probably probably points to the man sowing the the seed in the field, and Jesus says, uh, "Oh, by the way, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who goes out and you know that kind of a thing." So. Understanding it that way, it probably tends more toward a parable. I don't think it really matters uh, a whole lot either way with regard to the content. Sure, and I think it's just a good reminder that when it comes to parables or this kind of literature, sometimes you're not going to be able to pinpoint every detail with a one-to-one correspondence. And, and so letting the, the word picture, as you said, you know, be the, the main point and, and finding you know, the, what the meaning is that the prophet wants to communicate is going to be important. So he starts with the origin, the birth of Israel. And he, he says, this is perhaps a bit strange, your origin, your birth are of the land of Canaanites. And he says, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. What, why is he bringing that up? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, as uh, uh, I believe it was Horace Hummel in his commentary says, uh, Ezekiel is not uh, not denying the uh, account of Genesis and the beginning of uh, the the kingdom of God, uh, Abraham's call, anything like that, but uh, highlighting the fact that in um, in uh, this particular way, you know, Jerusalem is uh, standing for the people of God. Jerusalem's the capital city, and so that is uh, apart for a whole. The fancy word is uh, synecdoche. I have a hard time even saying that word. But um, the, the children of Israel were called out of Egypt, so they brought some of that flavor. They brought some of that uh, false worship. They brought some intermarriage uh, along with them, and there was a large group of people that uh, were Canaanite, 
were Amorites, were Hittite. They had that blood in their veins. Uh, they were told, uh, especially in the book of Joshua, that when they went to the promised land, they were supposed to wipe out all the peoples and their false gods, and the children of Israel didn't listen. And so the fruit of their disobedience to God is the fact that they have all of these false gods and false understandings of God that uh, they're living in and amongst, and they've grown very, very lax with regard to um, their worship and their devotion to the one true God. So, okay, there's the the start of the the picture of the people who— are the and I guess maybe the the way to that I I think this is is being set out is there's no reason at this point for the Lord to choose these people and and so they've got the this background that is involved in pagan idolatry there's no reason that he's going to choose them and I think that continues as Ezekiel pictures their birth and we get some language that you know it sounds like birth but Everything here, the the origin of Israel, they were completely neglected, I think, is the picture that's being painted in verses 4 and 5. Yeah, I would, I would say uh, neglected to the extreme. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of different practices, and, you know, some of these practices uh, with, uh, with the Arab, more nomadic peoples, uh, I believe is still documented to this day. But, you know, when a, when a baby is born... The uh, umbilical cord is uh, cut or tied in a knot so the baby doesn't die to, uh, bleed to death. And then the baby is washed clean, and sometimes they're washed clean with uh, water, and sometimes that water is a salt water mix. Um, in some places, the babies are uh, rubbed with salt uh, to make their skin tough. And so there, there are a lot of uh, practices here. The uh, the one that the one that gets me is uh, not not only the uh, the salt and uh, the water, but wrapped in swaddling cloths. Uh, the very last part of verse four, and uh, babies that have been in their mother's womb for nine months or so, uh, they're used to being in a tight confined place and so even to this day you wrap that baby tight you wrap that baby tight and it gives that baby a, a sense of security uh peace calm and none of these things in this word picture that's painted none of these things were done uh neglected to the extreme and then after that in uh, verse five um, you are cast out into the open field, for you are abhorred on the day that you were born. And uh, this, is a, this is a practice that goes on in many places the wor of the world, even today, with unwanted children. They are born, and then they are taken out into the wilderness and left to die in the elements. It's, it's horrific. Uh, probably neglect to the extreme. This is the picture now that God through Ezekiel is painting for Jerusalem. You by nature, children of God, you by nature were completely neglected by the world. It's a great picture of original sin. It's a great picture of the fact that we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead, spiritually neglected. And 
in this abandoned state, God, by grace, chooses them. It's a, it's a marvelous picture. Right. There's, there's absolutely no reason for anyone to want the people of Israel based on what you read in those first couple of verses. And there's really not even any reason for the Lord to want them, at least not from anything they've got to offer. Everything that he's going to, to desire is going to come out of his own love, his mercy, his grace. And that's where the text turns into verse 6. So the, the picture of Israel is an abandoned, completely neglected to the extreme. No one wants this, this little child. But here comes the Lord. He sees Israel. And then he, he says, and there's, there's some pretty significant language, and he says it twice, I said to you in your blood, live. And that gets repeated in verse 6. What's the significance of that statement from the Lord? Well, we believe, teach, and confess that we cannot, by our own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. Uh, We believe that we are all um, sinful at birth, that uh, even, uh, even in our conception, we are born in sin. We are, Ephesians 2, uh, like all of mankind, lost in our sinfulness. We are covered, um, metaphorically, with the blood, uh, with the taint of sin. And God comes to us. He doesn't say, clean yourself up first, and then I'll decide whether I want you. He comes to us in our miserable state. He comes to us in our sin, and he calls us. He chooses us. He calls us by name. And he does this with a word. In your blood, in your sin, live. Live. Kind of like the uh, call of Matthew, the tax collector, or uh, Zacchaeus, uh, the tax collector. He doesn't say clean up your act first. By the powerful word, he calls, and that word brings life. What a what a what a great reminder for us who uh, too often discount and devalue the power of God's word. Yeah, it's I mean it's a beautiful picture here of the Lord seeing this helpless child. No one wants this child. There's really no reason that he should, and yet he does. Out of his grace, his mercy, his love, he speaks to this child and and Israel lives. He gives life. And and it becomes apparent that this isn't a a one-and-done sort of thing for the Lord, but this is something that he's going to nurture. He's going to nurture his child. So verse 7, you became, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. That connects to the imagery that we saw in chapter 15. The picture is of someone growing up here. How does that picture advance into verse 7? Well, the, uh, not, not only does God give life, but he, as you said, nurtures and sustains life. We, we grow up into him who is our head. And I suppose in one respect, uh, you, could, uh, you could equate this to sanctification. You know, we are, we are given life. Uh, by God through the power of his word, and he can't give us more life because we're alive. But just like that newborn baby, in our new life, we grow, we mature, 
we are nurtured and we flourished. And the, uh, the marriage imagery that's going to be played out through this book is picked up here in verse 7 when you have the picture of a baby girl who grows up into a young woman and she is maturing. And in a little bit, we're going to find out that she's marrying, uh, marrying age, uh, to be married. And so we have that, that growing up and that nurturing picture growing as well. Um, I, I think there's a, uh, you know, at least a loose connection to, uh, we have, we have Jesus, uh, the boy in the temple, um, that Luke two, where uh, where Jesus uh, continues to grow into the uh, into the well into manhood, but he grows up in the uh, fear and knowledge and nurture of the Lord. Now, as the as the picture continues into verse eight, so the, again Israel's growing up here. The Lord then passes by again, sees again, and that I think we should just point out briefly the seeing of the Lord here is really important when when. Everyone else saw Israel, they abandoned at the beginning. The Lord sees he acts for Israel's good. And now here Israel is at the, you know, so picture now the grown woman ready to be married. And the Lord says, I will take you to be my wife. What what do we see there in verse eight as this marriage imagery really starts to take over? Well, the, uh, the, the marriage wedding imagery is uh, very, very common throughout all of Scripture. We have, uh, we have that marriage imagery in the Song of Solomon, where uh, some, of the, some of the words and languages are uh, similar to this chapter in Ezekiel. We have um, Psalm 45, which is a, a royal wedding psalm. Jesus, in uh, much of his teaching, a couple of his parables, he talks about wedding. He goes to a wedding in John chapter 2. So uh, we have this picture here. And the, the beautiful part is that the, the scriptural picture of Jesus as the bridegroom, and if you want to think of God in general, but specifically Jesus as the bridegroom, and the church, Jerusalem, as the bride. This is the picture, and uh, the picture then, uh, to carry that out, uh, the church is in the female uh, in the feminine, and so that that adds to all of these uh, word pictures and kind of graphic things that we're going to have in uh, in a little bit. The king chooses the bride. There is nothing specific in the bride to make the king choose her. The king chooses her, and by his choice, by his power, by his word, that peasant girl or that person nobody notices becomes the queen. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you certainly see the the picture of God's grace as everything for Israel. She's got absolutely nothing on her own. All the things that she does have come to her completely as a gift from the Lord. And that's true before she's married and now after she's married. So, so before, the Lord is the one who causes her to flourish and grow. And now that the Lord is, is going to make her his bride, he's going to continue to lavish these gifts upon her. In I mean, just the, 
lavishes, I don't know if there's a stronger, I can't think of a stronger word in English right now. Maybe there is a stronger word. You probably need it if there is for the way the Lord just, I mean, his gifts overflow to his bride. That's the the picture that you get in, oh, verses eight and following. Help us into to some of those images that are there of these gifts that the Lord showers upon his bride. Well, we, we do have a, a uh, lavishing of gifts. Uh, maybe it's the mother of all lavishing uh, here. I don't know. I don't know how you can make that. Um, you know, I was jubilant with a joyful jubilation kind of a thing. That's really what's going on here. And it, and it emphasizes the gift giving nature of God. Not only does God give to his children, but God gives, uh, the sun, the air, the water, um, life sustenance to all things. God gives even without our prayer. And so God continues to give and give and give and uh, when you when you get into some of the specifics with uh, the things that uh, God is giving his new bride the language here is uh, you may or may not see this in the English but in the Hebrew you'll notice the uh, the words um, are kind of familiar because many of these same words are used in the book of Leviticus and so we have technical terms for the type of fabric and the type of jewels that go on to the um, priests' garments and clothing. We have, we have a connection here with the tabernacle and with the temple and with the right and proper worship of God. And I think sometimes we miss that in uh, this particular chapter or maybe other places in scripture too but um we we are called we are given life and then we are made spiritual priests kings and priests uh we are told throughout scripture and uh, that is displayed here in the specific gifts that god is giving to his new bride I think that that's a really important point, that this is tabernacle temple language, because it's certainly going to help us when we start to see the abominations that come later as to what this has to do with the Lord being their God and then them turning away to idols. That's going to be a key connection. I think it's also an important reminder that the gifts that the Lord bestowed upon his people— it was more than, say, them living in the land of milk and honey, that it wasn't just about, you know, earthly prosperity. But, I mean, we could read in the, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4 was one of the Old Testament readings not that long ago in the three-year series, where it talks about, you know, what is the greatness of the people of Israel? And the greatness of the people of Israel was that the Lord was among them, that he was there to speak his word to them and to listen to their prayers. And this temple tabernacle language here in Ezekiel 16 really hammers that home, that the the greatest blessing that the Lord bestowed upon his people wasn't just the material things, you know, think of all the wealth in the time of, of King David and Solomon particularly, but it was the fact that he was there among them. That's really the blessing that, that the Lord is giving to his people, his bride. And so that's the picture that's being painted for us here in Ezekiel 16, and we need to take our break, so we'll pick up more on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFO. We're talking Ezekiel 16 with Pastor Clint Poppy, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Thank you. 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 5th. We are studying Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 34 with Pastor Clint Poppy. He is the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, prior to the break, we're looking at these first 14 verses where the Lord showers his bride Israel with all these gifts. We made the connection to the temple and tabernacle, how that language is picked up there by Ezekiel. He also uses imagery of of royalty, the crown on her head, certainly a connection to the, the gift of eternal life that we know is awaiting those who belong to the Lord. That book of Revelation pictures that. This beautiful bride that the Lord has... He does not keep a secret. Our, the section we read ends that her renown, so Israel's renown, went forth among the nations because of her beauty. Everyone knew this, and that she's beautiful because of what the Lord has given. What's there in that last verse that propels us forward into what's coming? Well, it, it really can't get any better than this. Uh, God has rescued this abandoned child, given this child life, nurtured this child, uh, adorned the child with gifts, married the child when the child reaches maturity, continues to lavish more and more and more gifts. Um, the temple tabernacle language talks about the covenant relationship and the worship aspect of this. Uh, the crown is on her head, and this renown, this, this isn't some secret. Like I've got a, uh, you know, secret beautiful bride off in my chamber. No, this is, uh, the, the king wants the whole world to know what he has done, and he is so proud of this beautiful queen, and everybody knows it, and the message has spread, and because of the renown of the queen, that brings glory and honor to the king. And it would be wonderful if we just stopped there and that was the end of the story. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. Right. This is where the abominations are going to come out and the contrast is going to be as great as possible. So we're picking up the text again at Ezekiel 16, verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? 
And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of, your, of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. That's the end of our text for today. That's the rest of, of the section we've got. It was Ezekiel 16, verses 15 through 34. That's a hard text holy to read. Holy moly, holy moly. What is, wasn't that something? Yeah, I mean, it's a, and, and it doesn't get much better from there. We'll pick up that tomorrow. It, we see the judgment upon this. But it's, I mean, that that is just hard to read, particularly after you, you read those first 14 verses. You see how the Lord lavished his gifts upon his people, and now, and, and so there's tons of things we can talk about here. One of the things that stands out right away is that this gift of the Lord, the, the beauty that he had bestowed upon his wife, now she takes that gift, and instead of rejoicing and thanksgiving that the Lord's given it to her, she trusts in the gift and starts to use that as a, a way to engage in all kinds of, of idolatry. So take us into those, those first couple of verses as to how everything just suddenly turns upside down. Well, in, instead of rejoicing in the one who gave her all these gifts, she uses the gifts for evil. She begins to trust in these gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. And uh, the, the shocking word, the shocking uh, imagery that God, through Ezekiel, calling out her abominations is that that whole business concept of whoring and uh, the uh, the word whore or prostitute is 20 times in this chapter the word whoring is nine times the word abomination or abominations is nine times and so i think god wants this message to be clearly communicated to the people of god don't be taking the gifts that I give you and turning them into evil, turning them into false gods and using them as an excuse for your sin. And, and Tim, as, as shocking as these words are, um, these words convict 
every Christian. Because isn't this exactly what we do? We take the gifts that God has given us. Doesn't matter what the gift is, the gift of money. We begin to trust in the gift of money. We use the gift of money for evil purposes. The gift of being able to think and to reason. We use that instead of rejoicing in that gift, we trust in our reason more than we trust in the Word of God. The gift of sexuality that's going to play out here in this chapter, God has given that to be enjoyed between a man and a woman who are married. And what do we do? We create perversion upon perversion, worshiping the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And so there's nothing new under the sun and while this, this is a shocking, shocking preaching of law from God through Ezekiel to the children of God, that word of law still applies to us, uh, maybe even more so today than ever. And that's why this chapter is so hard to read. I mean, it really is. Just the, I do think the way you're pointing this out is, is very important. The nature of idolatry is to take something good that God gave as his good gift that should be received with prayer and thanksgiving and to place that as the ultimate, to make that that which I trust, whatever it may be. And you, you listed uh, several great examples of, of ways that we continue to see this in our own, our own world and, and culture today, ways that we as Christians need to be called to repent for whatever gift of God that we have placed above him. And, and that's what the people of Israel are doing. And the, the shocking way that Ezekiel describes it really does you know, grab our attention, and rightly so, not so that we would, you know, like, oh, that's gross or something like that, but so we would be brought to repentance for our own sins in this regard. And it is, I mean, it is just so shocking to see how literally everything gets turned upside down here. All of these good gifts, to take that tabernacle language again, all these good gifts that were supposed to be used in worship of God now are being used in the service of idols. And, and that's true in a, a worship perspective. I mean, we can think of the vision that Ezekiel had of the temple previously, where he saw the abominations in the temple. He saw the idol worship that was actually happening there, which certainly shocks Ezekiel because he's a priest. But then also how that plays out into the the lives of the people. You know, this, this matter of marriage and the connection between adultery and idolatry is is on purpose you know i mean there's there's a lot of certainly in terms of the way that the the word picture works but it's quite striking how often when you have idolatry it does lead to those sorts of sins it was true in the ancient world it's true in our world today and we just i mean we turn everything upside down and the shocking picture of ezekiel 16 really calls us to open our eyes to it so that we would repent He's speaking, he's speaking to us. He's calling us to account for our abominations and for the way that we have been whoring around after false gods. And Tim, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but one of the greatest ways that love is displayed by God for the sinner is when he breaks your idol. If you, let's say you're a, a sports fan and your favorite sports team that you worship and adore and everything revolves around and all of a sudden they fall on hard times, God has broken that idol in your heart. That's right. Uh, your fishing boat or your camper breaks down and so you can't go fishing or camping for a year. 
God has broken that. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. God loves us when he breaks our idols. And um, he's doing a lot of idol breaking in Ezekiel chapter 16. Yeah, that, that's for sure. It reaches, I think there, there's a, a bit of a, a crescendo and a climax toward the ultimate sort of idolatry and worship of false gods that's happening among the people of Israel in verses 20 and following, where, where child sacrifice. And I mean, you can, you can even sense it in the Lord's language toward his people. It's one thing when he's talking about the, the bread, the oil, the honey, which they weren't supposed to be using honey anyways. But when he gets to the part about you even sacrifice your own children, just the, the utter exasperation in his voice, I, th- I think becomes evident even when you just read it on paper. Yes, and uh, you know, if ever if ever there was a connection to the abominations going on in our world today, uh, we see that very clearly. You know, the the abominations are inside the temple and the tabernacle as these holy things of God are being used in the committing of sin. And uh, you know, when you when you had the uh, the oil and the honey and all these things, these were these were things to be eaten or sacrificed or whatever. You mentioned that about the honey, but we have abuses in the church today with regard to the Lord's Supper, and we do not treat the holy things of God as holy things. And then when we have those abuses inside the house of God they naturally spill outside, outside the house of God, outside of our hearts, and they spill all the way to the point of child sacrifice. The ultimate gift that God gives a husband and a wife is a child. What an amazing, what an awesome gift. And then to sacrifice that child as a form of your idol worship, uh, Baal or Molech or whatever, and uh, Baal and Molech worship. You can't go to the local Baal or Molech uh, church on the corner, but Baal and Molech worship takes place every day in America through the um, gross um, dealings with babies and baby parts and fetal tissue and all kinds of things like that. The end justifies the means. How can I have a baby? Um, I'm working on my graduate degree. Uh, it's going to hurt my career. And we, we use, we self-justify, but we use all of our idolatry as an excuse to do just what we want. And we don't care who or what gets in the way, even the life of a child. Uh, Lord, Lord, have mercy upon us. I mean, you can see uh, just from that conversation and how that connects into this chapter with Ezekiel sixteen. Though the Lord in verse twenty three, it's it's put parenthetically in the in the English Standard Version that we're reading from. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord. It's almost like he you know, he has to take a breath from expressing all these abominations and just say, "Woe to you! I I can't believe that I'm having to to say these things, but I do need to say them." And so, you know, all this wickedness, even that's not enough, as the text goes on into verse 23. There's this description of, of building a vaulted chamber, building lofty places. Is that is that speaking about, like, the high places of Israel, Pastor Poppy, or is there another reference there? Well, it, it can be talking about the high places, and we don't know a lot 
uh, archaeologically and uh, with through excavations and stuff with the high places. But, uh, you know, I guess always in my mind, I thought a high place was just a, a high place where you thought you were close to God. And that's where you offered your uh, false worship and false sacrifice. But uh, there there's some uh, evidence that these uh, these were much bigger than uh, just a, an altar and a place to worship. Um, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking now, and uh, not trying to, to disparage a particular city, but what goes on there, I'm thinking of Las Vegas, and where you have casino after casino after casino after casino, one on every corner. This is, this is flaunted for all the world to see. And here, Ezekiel is giving this word picture that your abomination, your whoring, your um, uh, false worship, your all of these things, you, you, you're doing it on every street corner. You're attracting attention to yourself in the same way that your renown used to be known as a source of pride throughout all the world. Now your evil has become even a source of embarrassment, embarrassment for the pagans because you're so evil. I think that's kind of the word picture, uh, maybe Bourbon Street uh, with uh, Mardi Gras kind of stuff. There are probably other ones that I'm not thinking of, but uh, that's that's what comes to my mind, Tim. Yeah, well, and this matter of the, the shamelessness of the way that this is happening among the people of God compared to the actual the shame that's felt by some of the pagans, you know, in, in this section— Ezekiel is given to list some of the various nations, and it goes, so we have in verse 26, we have the Egyptians, then in verse 27, we've got Philistines, we've got Assyrians, and then Chaldea, which is is roughly, you know, the same chronological order that Israel meets these nations and, and play an important role in the history of Israel in its history. But, but what stands out, and I think you referenced this earlier is that it even, it's even a shaming to the Philistines. I mean, of of all the people that, that it would actually be a shame to the Philistines, but not to the people of Israel. I mean, hopefully that hit the people of Israel who heard this pretty hard when they realized that even the pagans are ashamed of it, but you're not. The longer that you are caught in sin, the more you are desensitized to that sin. We, we see people, whether they're, you know, military leaders or sports figures or political people or whatever, and they are just doing egregious things with no accountability to anyone. Uh, it's good to be the king, you know, kind of, a, kind of an attitude. And finally, when their, when their work, their... Uh, you know, sin, whatever, however you want to say it, uh, becomes so gross and so egregious that it is offending everyone, and they don't even see it. They can't see it because they are blinded by their own, they've just been sucked in, and it just becomes a part of their nature, a part of their thought process, a part of their being. And that's what's going on here. Uh, the, this section, um, oh, 23, 24, and 25, the um, the translators who have translated into English, as shocking as these words are, the translators who have translated into English have watered down the word of God, because in the in the Hebrew, and if you can uh, read the Hebrew, you you know what I mean, and you know what's coming. 
but in the Hebrew, it gives the most shocking and graphic portrayal of how this whoredom has reached new heights. In the annals of the history of whoredom, you take the cake. There has never been a whoredom recorded as gross and egregious as the whoredom you are committing. Even to the point where, and the Hebrew literally says, you'll spread your legs for anybody who walks by. That is the word picture that God gives Ezekiel to tell the people. To shame them into repentance. It's it's not it's not a pleasant thing to read, not a pleasant thing to think about. It's and what what is even perhaps even just as striking, or just to add to it, you know, in this same section over and over again, the Lord tells us people you still weren't satisfied. I mean, it, it just which is man, that's another apt description of idolatry. That no matter how much idols offer us, it's never enough. We we always look for more. It's it's not a pleasant picture. And that's I mean, you know, verse thirty, you know, how sick is your heart then? You did all these things. It was everywhere. And even even to the point and oh man, I just over and over again, it you think it can't get worse and it does. The Lord says, you know, you didn't even you reversed the normal order of the sin of prostitution is bad enough, but you didn't even play by those rules. You paid them instead of them paying you. It's just, again, a, a totally shocking picture here. Yes, and, and uh, you know, we've, we've probably read books or seen movies or heard accounts of people who have hit, and ro- have hit rock bottom for whatever reason, and then in their rock bottom state, they realize that there's two or three more levels of rock bottom to go. And they are doing all kinds of things and selling themselves so that they can get money for what, whatever they need for their, for their habit or their fix. This, this is the picture that we have here, a picture of sheer desperation in the midst of this sin. Never satisfied, never satisfied, never satisfied, can't get enough, and spinning completely out of control and not even realizing it. Uh, we, we, you know, because of the length of this chapter, Tim, we, we've had to give kind of a flyby and we, we have barely scratched the surfaces of, of the, the, uh, you know, where it says, how sick is your heart? We barely scratched the surfaces. We did not go in depth with several of these word pictures that Ezekiel paints. If, uh, if you've ever gone to an archaeological exhibit or subscribed to Biblical Archaeological Review, you see the little statues and the little false gods. You see the women with six, eight, ten, twenty breasts. You see the men with um, giant male members. This is brought up in this chapter. You took the jewelry that I gave you and you turned it into that kind of art and then you pleased yourself with it. How sick is your heart? That is God's ultimate cry right here to the people. And we begin to see through Ezekiel now where the call to repentance is, I mean, things are so bad. And God is saying, repent, repent, repent. You cannot keep going. 
Right. I mean, and, and it's just, uh, uh, yeah, you can't keep going. And that's where this chapter is going to turn a corner. We, we stopped at verse 34 because there is a pretty distinct transition into the next verse where the Lord's going to begin to describe the judgment. And then there is gospel coming. Remember, the Lord is the faithful husband. He showed himself that at the beginning of this chapter, and he will show himself to be that at the end of this chapter as well. That is coming. We're, as you said, pausing here in the middle for the sake of being able to to dig at least somewhat into these verses. We could always go go deeper. It's, it's something I always find with this show. It's always amazing how much we can talk and learn about the Word of God, even just the, the smallest sections. Yeah, the, the matter there, just one more thought for it, that stands out to me at the end of verse 34, you know, you were different, that, that matter being different. The Lord had call, called Israel to be different, to be a light among the nations. And again, they had completely missed that uh, in, in this gross idolatry, their, their whoredom, as Ezekiel describes it here. Pastor Poppy, we've, we've got just under four minutes left on the morning. Certainly a difficult chapter to read, shocking language from the prophet. And, and more is coming, and we're going to pick that up tomorrow. So make sure you listen tomorrow to get the rest. But as you as you think about this section and, and what the Lord is saying here, what is it that we need to take from it as Christians today? And, and how does a text like this serve in God's purpose in his word to point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, I think there's a reason, Tim, why so few people even realize that this chapter exists. We tend to steer away from... Um, the Word of God, especially when we have graphic portrayals of sin, because they hit so close to home. And I think that's the beauty of this program, and I think that's the beauty of any time we are in God's Word. The very last phrase that you talked about, you were different. Now, is that law or is that gospel? I would submit that it's both. You were different. I called you by name. I called you out of your death and out of your abandonment. That is reminding of the gospel call, that call to repentance. And at the same time, now you're different too, because your sin has achieved a new level. If you uh, back up a little bit where uh, he calls her in verse 32, adulterous wife. Yes, you're adulterous, but you're still my wife. You're still my wife. He does not divorce her. He calls her to repent. And that's God's message for us now. No matter how shameful our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds have been, no matter how gross our sins have been in our own heart or in the eyes of the world, God's love is for you. God's forgiveness is for you. The blood of Jesus Christ covers over all your sins. The one who has given you life wants to give you new life through the forgiveness of sins in his name. And so when we read these sections of Scripture, yes, we need to look at the historical part, but we need to see that God is speaking to me. God is speaking to me in the midst of my sin and my adultery spiritually, or physically for that matter, my whoring around. And to remember that God is the one true God, and His love, in spite of my faithlessness, His love is perfect and faithful for all generations. Pastor Clint Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 to 34. Pastor Poppy, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a great honor, Tim. Thanks for having me. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.